0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com.
1: WBUR Podcasts, Boston.
2: Have you ever noticed how food has a way of being claimed? Chicago has its deep dish pizza... And then there's New Orleans with the po' boy and New Jersey's pork roll, or Taylor ham,
3: depending on who you ask, I guess. Totally. But for my French-Canadian family, nothing beats a Chinese pie, which is a layered casserole of ground beef, corn and mashed potatoes on top. It kind of looks like a shepherd's pie, but it's not. Shepherd's
2: pie, I know. Chinese pie, I don't. But you're a WBUR producer and... Isn't that something that your family has eaten for generations?
3: Yes, but we're not the only
2: ones.
4: It's very intimate. It's something that you eat here uh, from childhood to the the end of your life. It's very, very common.
3: That's Fabien Deglise. He's a journalist for the Montreal newspaper Le Devoir. Chinese pie, or pâté chinois as they call it there, is so popular that in 2007, Le Devoir named it the unofficial national dish of Quebec. Deglis says it's so popular that most households cook it. There's even TV shows about it. And uh, one of the characters
4: tried to recall the receipt of pâté chinois. She said, ground beef, corn, potatoes. No,
1: potatoes, corn, ground beef. Steak, bieden, patate. Repeat
2: after me. Steak, bieden, patate.
4: And that was very funny because there are no recipe for pâté chinois.
3: You're kidding me, no recipes? That's right, there's no recipes. But despite this national obsession, no one, I mean, no one, knows where it comes from.
1: Probably if I find the real origin of pâté chinois, I would get the Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, and I would be uh, very proud of that.
2: Welcome to Last Scene show about people, places, and things that have gone missing. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm Nora Sachs. Now, when it comes to Chinese pie, it's not clear if this dish even comes from Quebec, or Canada for that matter. And that's been eating at WBUR producer Amanda Beland. So today, she's taking on the mystery of the dish with the unusual name, and in the process, discovers a whole lot more than just its origin story. This is Chinese Pie.
3: On the night I turned 33, I was staring at a computer screen. On it was my family tree, documented for me by my partner Elio on Ancestry. I always had some curiosity in the back of my mind about my heritage, but never had any real facts about where I came from. That all changed that night. Turns out, I'm about as French-Canadian as a person can be. And with that change came more curiosity about a dish I grew up eating, the one with the unusual name. It was a name I thought only my family used, one that I wondered if I should say so loudly in public. In Quebec, that unusual name is pâté chinois. Technically, pâté chinois translates to China pie or Chinese pie, depending on who you ask. And that's what my grandparents called it, according to my dad.
1: Uh, pâté chinois.
3: (laughs) They did?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. <laughs> I know, and, and, and I didn't remember that till you said it. <laughs> and then it rang a bell that, yeah, that's why the Meme used to call it, and, and Pepe, too.
3: My grandparents, my Meme and Pepe, were Franco-American. They lived in Manchester, New Hampshire, a once-bustling mill town on the Merrimack River.
4: Yeah.
3: That's them right there. This is taken from a home video, recorded when I was a baby. I also grew up in Manchester, so did my dad. My mom grew up in a neighboring town called Goffstown, but we're all part of the roughly 2 million people living in New England who claim French-Canadian heritage and Chinese pie or pâté chinois.
1: Meme made it all the time, and uh, mom made it often enough, but not that often because you didn't care for
3: it. I definitely didn't like vegetables as a kid.
1: Yeah, we would have it, it would be like a pretty quick meal. You know, mom would make some mashed potatoes and then, you know, fry the hamburger and then take the corn.
3: But it wasn't just my parents. A lot of us Quebecers, including my extended family, ate Chinese pie.
1: I think all of Meme's sisters made it also. You know, Aunt B and Aunt Eileen and Aunt Elaine. And I think my Uncle Rudy liked, liked it, so I know they used to eat it. So I, I think they all used to make it, so they must have got that from my grandmother.
3: That's how Chinese pie spreads from generation to generation, mother to daughter. My mom got her recipe from my grandmother, and I got mine from my mom. It's made in restaurants, but not often. And when it is, it's mostly in Quebec. No other province in Canada claims pâté chinois like Quebecers do. And it's mostly kept within families and neighbors, documented through recipe cards, but more often through word of mouth.
1: You have all of Meme's recipe cards, right?
3: I do. I looked around in them and there isn't a recipe I could find in there for Chinese pie. This is partly why the origin of Chinese pie is a mystery. And it's that mystery that inspired food historian Jean-Pierre Lemasson to write an entire book called The Unfathomable Mystery of Chinese Pie. In it, he looks for a clear origin for the dish and the name, but finds none, except to confirm it belongs to Quebec. One of the
1: interests of that book, in my opinion, is that destroy. All explanation about the origin of pâté chinois prove that every current explanation are wrong. But I am unable to prove what is a good history.
3: As I see it, there are two known unknowns here. One, where does the dish come from? And two, what's up with that name? Both histories are tied together, but I'm going to explore each separately. First, let's dig into the history of the dish, which I think will lay the foundation for the name. As Jean-Pierre writes in his book,
1: là
3: Isn't it a strange paradox to be both united in the same love of taste and also united in the ignorance of its history? Many Quebecers are also united in that same ignorance and history. One that Canadian musician Gordon Lightfoot knows well.
2: There was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run. When the wild majestic mountains stood alone against the sun.
3: Here's how the legend goes. Pate Chinois was created during the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Chinese Canadian railway workers made the dish during construction. White Canadian workers adopted the recipe and named it after them. Seems almost too perfect, doesn't it? That white and Chinese laborers were just out there, working on the railroad, trading favorite recipes? I didn't quite buy it, so I started digging into the facts, and when I did, the legend began to fall apart.
4: Like I said, I've never heard of this. This is an interesting story.
3: That's Paul Yi, a historian and author of Chinese history in Canada, including the building of the Canadian Pacific Railway.
4: So the grand mystery to me is what the Chinese connection is, because in terms of ingredients, not so great. In terms of, you know, cultural history or culinary history, no connection either.
3: The construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway began in 1881 and lasted for four years. Roughly 15,000 Chinese workers were hired for the project. The majority of them built the western leg of the railway through the Canadian Rockies in British Columbia. Few worked in the province, now known as Quebec. Little information exists about the Chinese railroad worker experience. But what's documented shows they didn't eat very well. Rice was a staple for them, yet many suffered and died from malnutrition. Bing Chao is a descendant of these railway workers and spoke with them and others about their experiences building the railroad.
5: They were working in a very primitive condition in the middle of nowhere in the bush. If they can plan something during the summer, they got some fresh vegetable. Uh, Otherwise, they were eating preserved meat, frozen meat.
3: Chow is a member of the group called Foundation to Commemorate the Chinese Railroad Workers in Canada. He's also never heard of Pate Xinhua or its connection to the railway. Still, there's something else happening in Canada and in the U.S. that's crucial to this theory, says Paul Yi. Living in that early period was overshadowed by
4: huge amounts of white racism because the Chinese were not wanted. At all, in Canada.
3: When construction wrapped on the first leg of the railroad, Canada instituted its first head tax. This forced Chinese immigrants in Canada to pay an annual fee for living in the country. Canada would raise that tax two more times before passing the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1923. Bing Chao says of the more than 15,000 Chinese brought in to build the railroad, roughly a quarter died in its construction.
5: If they fell into the uh, valley or whatever, they, they don't look for them. And um, they just leave them there to die like an animal. Because at the time, the white people, for some reason, they hated the Chinese so much. Even after the Chinese stay with that, they don't let them bury in Canada. At night, they tuck up their body and threw them out.
3: Chow describes a photo taken when the last spike was driven into the ground in 1885. He says as you look at the image, all you see are white workers.
5: They don't want the people know the Chinese contribution. The reason is very obvious. the Racism is a systematic racism in the Canadian community.
3: Canada's Exclusion Act was eventually repealed in 1947, and in subsequent decades, the Canadian government would include Chinese immigrants in the political and social fabric of Canada and recognize their past contributions to the country. Still, why would a country's workers with documented and persistent racism against the Chinese name a dish in their honor? It doesn't make sense at all. Couple that with the location of the Chinese workers and the ingredients available to them, I think we can count this theory out. Thanks, Gordon Lightfoot.
5: But time has no beginnings and history has no bounds.
2: As to this verdant country, they came from all around.
3: Okay. So aside from the we've been working on the railroad theory, there are many, many more about the origin of this dish. It seems like everyone has a favorite or two. Montreal journalist Fabien Deglise says a meat and rice casserole inspired the dish and the name. It could be linked to a cone-shaped strainer called a chinois or tied to Chinese domestic workers who may have made it for their white bosses. Some say it comes from China, a small town in Maine. Those believers say the dish was created by French Canadians living in the area. Seemed plausible, so I reached out to the Friends of China main group on Facebook to see if anyone knew of or made Chinese pie. Dozens of people responded, and as I scrolled through those comments, it was clear there was a common theme. I made one today with
4: corn, and that's the only way we've ever made shepherd's pie.
3: French-Canadian heritage here also.
1: I've never heard it called Chinese pie or pate chinois. We called it shepherd's pie, always.
4: My 76-year-old French-Canadian dad still makes this all the time. And we've always called it pâté chinois, or shepherd's pie too, I guess.
3: I grew up with it, called shepherd's pie, and continue to make it. And this set me on a new culinary path about where the dish comes from. Tons of cultures have potato and meat pies, but there are only two that resemble Chinese pie. Shepherd's pie is traditionally lamb or mutton, peas or carrots, and potatoes. And then there's cottage pie, made with beef and just potatoes. Both are from the British Isles.
0: People argue about it over here a lot. I mean, you do get purists who say, absolutely not. A cottage pie has to involve uh, beef and a shepherd's pie. Obviously, it's all in the name. It's lamb.
3: That's Annie Gray, an author and food historian specializing in British food history. If people are making a dish with beef, corn and potatoes and calling it shepherd's pie or cottage pie... Could Chinese pie just be an adaptation of those that caught on among the wider French-Canadian community? It's possible, says Gray. Canada became a British colony following the French and Indian War. And both shepherds and cottage pies were ubiquitous in Britain by the 19th century.
0: Cultures always collide. Cultures always interact with each other. French Canadians always had uh, connections with British Canadians and British Canadians always had connections with Americans. And so there always would have been this sort of constant loop.
3: And the ingredients, potatoes and beef, were also widely available throughout Canada, specifically braised beef, which some older Quebecers use instead of ground meat in the dish. Corn has also long been a major crop in Quebec, called bladaine there, meaning Indian wheat.
0: So it's not surprising to me that all of these kind of elements would come together. And people might go, OK, you know, I've, I've heard about this recipe from my parents. Or actually, oh, I met these British fishermen, or Scottish fishermen, as they almost certainly would be. And they were doing this thing, and they called it a shepherd's pie, and that's kind of cool, but weird. Um, so let's let's Frenchify this, as we would with anything.
3: I talk to a lot of food historians, and one of the things they can all agree on is that change in food is super common. Dishes are always evolving, and ingredients are always being swapped out based on preference. In a sense, that is the only thing constant in food history.
0: You know, we codify things, but we do not invent them. So food
3: changes. But it still doesn't explain one of the things I find fascinating about Chinese pie which is how prevalent it is among the French-Canadian and Franco-American communities. How does it become so tied to Quebec culture? I think it takes a dash of innovation and a global event like World War I. The fate of the nation and the safety of the world will be decided on the Western
5: battlefront of Europe.
3: After the U.S. enters the war, there's a push by a new federal agency called the United States Food
0: Administration to change eating habits. They were encouraging everybody that it was your patriotic duty um, to support those on the front line by just shifting how you cook.
3: This is Laura Vogt, a curator of the National World War One Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. This shift that she's talking about encouraged eating less wheat. This was so the grain could be sent to the troops overseas. Instead, there were government posters and cookbooks pushing another ingredient.
0: And at the very top, it says, Corn, the food of the nation, served some way every meal. Appetizing, nourishing, economical. Uh, And it shows a woman who's using cornmeal and grits and hominy. People in the
3: U.S. and Canada were being encouraged to save the wheat. At the same time, both countries' views of food change considerably. The study of nutrition and what people are eating becomes important. Commercial canning is hitting its peak. And one of the canning industry's earliest hubs is in New England. And it's mostly corn. This is where we get back to French Canadians, who are now migrating from Quebec to New England to work in the mills. And it's in this sea of change that corn becomes more prevalent.
0: There was this uh, encouragement to be using it in a variety of different recipes, to be using it in really creative ways. And, uh, you know, very likely encourages folks to add what wasn't, you know, traditional to a shepherd's pie, but throwing a little extra corn uh, certainly wouldn't be a bad thing.
3: All of this makes sense and certainly explains how corn showed up to the party. But it still leaves me with a big mystery. Where does the name Chinese pie come from? That's the next piece of the puzzle. After the break, my theory on how one politician, a government report, and an ideology led to the dish with the unusual name. Taped to the wall in front of my desk are dozens of post-it notes, facts, and names that led me to my theory on the origin of Chinese pie. It should have been a relief, but I was still feeling totally stumped on why Chinese pie is called Chinese pie. That is, until I found Paul Marion.
1: Make sure your son knows about Chinese pie, pate chinois, baked by your meme.
3: That's Marion reading his poem, called Chinese Pie, from his collection, What is the City? I found Paul Marion via Jack Kerouac, thanks again to my partner Elio. Let me explain. Elio suggested I look for clues through Jack Kerouac, the Franco-American poet from Lowell, Massachusetts. It was in that search that I came across Paul Marion, who edited Kerouac. And when I found Marion's poem, Chinese Pie it would blow the lid off my search. In
4: 1881, a politician labeled the Massachusetts French the Chinese of the Eastern States, industrial invaders, not a stream of stable settlers.
3: Could it really be that simple that the name Chinese pie comes from the phrase Chinese of the Eastern States? To suss out that theory, we have to go deep into the French-Canadian story in New England. Between 1840 and 1930, roughly 900,000 French-Canadians made the journey to the region. They were coming down in families. If they didn't know somebody already in the town, they might live with another French-Canadian family just before they can get their bearings. They would immediately get jobs in the mills. That's Sarah Deary of the New England Historic Genealogy Society. Her specialty is in French-Canadian ancestry professionally, but also she has French-Canadian roots herself. Life was tough for these immigrants. Men, women, and children worked long hours in the mills where they earned very little money. My grandfather and his siblings all worked in shoe factories, doing various jobs in Manchester. When it came down to eating, Deary said it was all about convenience. We have a family story that my grandmother would buy one pound of meat a week, and she had to stretch that for five individuals for five days. And by the end of the week, you have a bunch of leftovers, and you just kind of throw them all together into a casserole. These Franco-Americans lived in areas known as Little Canadas, where they closed themselves off to American culture. There, they spoke French and kept their customs. David Vermette writes about New England's French in his book, A Distinct Alien Race, The Untold Story of Franco-Americans, Industrialization, Immigration, Religious Strife.
4: They were very much into the idea that they would remain a separate group, loyal to the United States, working for the United States, and yet separate. And this comes from their background in Canada.
3: Starting in 1763, Canada was under British rule. In Quebec, these French speakers resisted assimilating into British society, fighting strongly to keep their language and their customs. That nationalistic resistance became known as la surveillance.
4: This was an ideology. You know, it was something that was strong. It was promoted by French-Canadian elites and Franco-American elites, by their priests, by their journalists, by the, the professionals and educated people among them.
3: But here in New England, they were met with even stronger pressure to assimilate, viewed with skepticism in part because of the Roman Catholicism.
4: They did crazy things like having these huge religious processions with hundreds and thousands of people, you know, through these industrial towns with the priests in full regalia with big crosses and incense and they're marching through the streets. And the majority Yankee population was like, what's this, what, this is totally weird. You know, what are these people doing?
3: And it's in this powder keg that someone lights a match. And that person was Carol D. Wright, director of the Massachusetts Bureau of Labor Statistics. Wright is looking into the merit of a law that would restrict the workday to 10 hours. He gets intel from informants that French Canadians are resisting the change. This builds on the growing skepticism of these Canucks in the community. So he notes that resistance in his 1881 report. David Vermette reads some of that for me.
4: With some exceptions, the Canadian French are the Chinese of the eastern states. They care nothing for our institutions, civil, political, or educational.
3: They are a whole The phrase Chinese of the eastern states is both racist against Franco-Americans and the Chinese. It draws on anti-Chinese rhetoric happening in the U.S. and, as you'll remember, in Canada too at this time. A year after the 1881 report, the U.S. would pass its own Chinese Exclusion Act. The phrase Chinese of the Eastern States also catches on beyond New England. A few months later, the New York Times repeats the slur in an editorial. In that piece, they say of Franco-Americans, They are, for the most part, ignorant and unenterprising, subservient to the most bigoted class of Catholic priests in the world a peasantry belonging more to the 18th than the 19th century. To say the local Franco-American community is incensed by the report would be an understatement.
4: The various French-Canadian clubs and societies and the little candidates wrote to the state legislature and they tried to refute this report, and there was even hearings in Boston where French-Canadian witnesses came forward to try to claim that they were loyal citizens and good workers.
3: But it's too late. That report, by Carol Wright, has a domino effect, crystallizing racism against a group now feared and hated by many in New England. A portion of the report, using the phrase Chinese of the Eastern States, is even read into the record at a labor hearing on the Senate floor in 1883. At the same time, a conspiracy theory starts to form about Franco-Americans.
4: You have, you know, reputable newspapers like the New York Times, for one. They're spreading these conspiracy theories that the Catholic Church had deliberately sent these French-Canadian workers into New England in a bid to take over New England.
3: David Vermette says he found no evidence of this but it still spreads and even leads to people trying to ban the French language from being taught or spoken in schools. This period of time was when my French-Canadian family, like so many others, were trying to make a home in New England. It's really hard thinking about them living and working in these times. Despite all of this, immigration to New England from Quebec doesn't slow down. In fact, it speeds up, and the growing community — keeps fighting.
4: They were used to that idea that we're going to build a fence and we're going to fight. So I think that's what they did.
3: This fighting and prejudice continues throughout the early 20th century. Franco-Americans become targets of the eugenics movement and of the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was headquartered in Maine in 1924 And research shows there were regular attacks and shows of force against Franco-Americans. And this brings me back to Chinese pie. Here's a dish prevalent in this community. It makes sense to me that they would take back a name used against them and turn it into a rallying cry. You're trying to drive us out, but you can't. It's also possible the name was given to the dish by the outside, but adopted for the same reasons as that rallying cry. A dish that came down from Quebec now has a name that travels back up home through generations. A big middle finger to the majority elite. Here's Paul Marion again with his poem, Chinese Pie.
4: Attacked for loyalty to culture, the Canucks counterpunched, and the next government report was kinder.
1: You can order pâté chinois in Montreal. One recipe the immigrants sent back.
3: Marion said he wrote the poem for a friend's son to preserve the memory of the dish. Like me, Chinese pie for him was just a given for most of his life. He didn't think much about it until he started writing his poem. For him, this is just a theory— And that's what this is for me, too. There's no documented definitive history of Chinese pie, but this history here is what makes the most sense to me. I only became interested in my family's story in my 30s, but by then, it was almost too late. Both sets of my grandparents had died, and my mom passed away when I was in college. My dad's memories of his family are what I have as mine. I can't begrudge younger Amanda for not having the foresight to ask questions about how my mom grew up.
0: Say, I love you, Mommy. I do, you Mommy. Yeah. You're a special Mommy. I'm so special, Mommy. Daddy's going to film Mommy and Amanda?
3: Or okay. what it was like for my grandparents. Can
0: you do how it about again? Give a nice kiss to kisses for Mommy. You like that, <laughs> <laughs> That's for my
1: girl.
3: The best thing I can do now Is make sure my future family knows all of this history That I pass down my memories And my family's memories to them That I pass down Chinese pie Alright, so we're going to put this in the oven? Yes Let's do bottom shelf and then we'll do broiler at the end Agreed Let's do 30 minutes 40 minutes.
2: Okay. And go. This episode of Last Scene was written and reported by Amanda Beland. It was produced by Amanda and myself, Nora Sachs. Jeb Sharp is our story editor. Mix and sound design by Emily Jankowski. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Paul Vykus, Matt Reed, Dean Russell, Amory Sievertson, Megan Cattell, Quincy Walters, and Grace Tatter. Our digital producer is Megan Cattell. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. We want to say a big thanks to David Vermette, Jean-Pierre LeMasson, Sarah Deary, Laura Vogt, Fabian DeGleese, Paul Yi, Bin Chow, Annie Gray, Paul Marion, and the dozens of other people who shared their research and insight on food history with us. More thank yous to Don Beland, Elio DeLuca, Walter Wuthman, Amy Moon, Chris Sidereck, Vanessa Ochovio, and Jack Lepiars. And big thanks to Gordon Lightfoot for the music, and the Library of Congress for that World War I sound. You can find all of our stories and show notes at wbur.org slash last seen and follow us on Twitter at last seen podcast. And you can always pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Just drop us a line at last seen Next up, the beginning of a three-part miniseries investigating a killing in Boston's Haitian community. Thanks for listening.